Blog Talk Radio. We are the heirs of that first revolution. Will a strong and united America still be a force for freedom and prosperity around the world? America has created the longest peacetime economic expansion in our history. We are the heirs of that first revolution. Good common sense and sound judgment of the American people and their essential love of justice. Hi, welcome to the Kudzu Vine for December 11th, 2022. I'm your host, David McLaughlin. Join me as always. Welcome, Tim Shiflett. Good evening, sir. All right, excited about tonight's show. Uh, Our final regular Sunday scheduled show um, before we have a little holiday break and, and come back on the 8th of January. But uh, we'll have an excellent guest tonight um, from NBC News and NBC Latino, Suzanne Gamboa, who covers um, Latino political and culture in America. She's going to join us, um, and really we're going to probably talk a little bit more about politics, but of course culture and politics, there's always that intersection where they come together. So. Uh, we can't wait to speak with Suzanne Gamboa here in about 20 minutes. Uh, but until then, uh, one of our biggest topics for a while now has been the Senate race um, between uh, challenger Herschel Walker and incumbent Reverend Raphael Warnock uh, for the U.S. Senate. And that did uh, the election. The runoff finally took place with no libertarians involved. And Raphael Warnock, as I predicted last week, won by slightly more than when he defeated Kelly Leffler to win the two-year term. Now he has the four of the six-year term, um, a full Senate term. Um, but, Tim, right off the bat, who is going to pick up the important work of forming a committee of men looking at women, looking at social media? <laughs> you know, I'm going to – I'm going to – I hope he keeps talking. You know, I, I, I'm going to miss that sort of thing. It, it was uh, it, it was a lot of it was funny, of course, but a lot of it at the same time was a little bit scary because I had visions of him somehow saying that on the floor of the U.S. Senate. Um, thankfully, that didn't happen, and uh, there's a myriad of reasons uh, among the data that tells us what happened, but the bottom line is it was a happy night Tuesday night. We got to close it out at 11 o'clock, and i got to hand it to you. You've almost hit the nail on the head with the percentage and everything. I had picked it to be a lot closer than that, but uh, as the uh, metro area came in late, it became apparent that it wasn't going to be that close, so uh, good going there, sport. Well, Georgia's still Georgia. Um, Raphael Warnock's still Raphael Warnock, but he did have incumbency. But as much as I, like I've said before, Kelly Leffler didn't connect with Georgia voters, she's certainly way more qualified than Herschel Walker. Well, Tim, apparently Catherine did not like your answer about your, or your avoidance of the question about who is going to take up the important work of those men looking at women, looking at social media. Um, Catherine, is that something that one of Herschel Walker's uh, senators in Texas is going to pick up? I don't. I'm. I'm I've, I've just been so thrilled all week. It's been so great to have that win under our belts. I'm, you know, really happy, and I haven't been really thinking about Herschel Walker and what he's going to do. Oh, well, he can't do that important work. It's going to be up to one of the hundred senators that are actually in the Senate. To take up that. I mean, who's going to build the sky wall between in the Pacific Ocean between here and China and keep that bad air out? I mean, you know, <laughs> who's going to keep up with the vampires and the werewolves? So much work. Um, yeah. You know, but... I mean, Raphael Warnock, he tries to get peanut prices to market. He tries to, to, to lower the cost of insulin. He's trying to, you know, build highways, but he's not doing all that important work that Herschel Walker put for us, so I just don't know. Um, but, but seriously, Catherine, we looked at the map, 
and um, places were were better for Democrats. Place a few places were better for Republicans, um, but it was still a close race. Um, do you find that somewhat disturbing? Yes, very. That was the the other question that I didn't want to ask all week was who are those forty nine percent who would vote for him? You know, you wonder about it when you're walking down the street and looking at people. Did you vote for Herschel Walker? <laughs> I mean, I felt a little bit. I felt a little bit the same way during Trump, but uh, I don't know. There's something even more troubling about someone like Herschel Walker. But yeah, I think it's a he's it's gone a question we have to ask. Now, now, Tim, I know you've broken down a lot of numbers, and you alluded to it just a minute ago, on this race. What are some counties, some places, some statistics that stuck out to you? Well, um, between November the 8th and um, the runoff date, Herschel Walker's numbers improved in 26 counties, thus – that's not good when there's 159 counties because Warnock improved in the rest, basically. And he improved also in a few of the counties where Walker improved. The, turn, the turnout just went up that much. We now know that Warnock went into Election Day after the early vote with a 320,000-vote lead. Um and Walker just wasn't able to overcome that. He he won the election day vote uh, by about 225,000 votes, and so he lost by nearly 100,000. But another thing that happened with this early vote, we now know that 31.8% of it was black. Well, that's a record, and a good record when when Raphael Warnock was exceeding 95% of that vote. Um, also, more people early voted than voted in person um, by 54 to 46, if you count the early wow. mail-in vote. So uh, this data was pointing toward a win for 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 Warnock, it, it, it really was. Um, turnout turned out to be just almost ninety percent of the November turnout, which was astounding. And one county in this state had more votes cast uh, than it did on November the eighth. And of all things, that was Johnson County, Herschel Walker's county. Uh, but actually, that that actually helped Warnock a little bit because he was the one that picked up the extra vote and not Herschel Walker, who is threatening to call the sheriff or somebody down there about it. But uh, seriously, he he wants to call the sheriff and find out why he didn't get 100% of the vote down there. There was one super county that helped us, and that's right there in Catherine's backyard, DeKalb. They had a higher turnout than the state average. Um, basically, only the northern tier of counties w- was all that that helped Walker at all, and, and the rest of the state just uh, it trended the other way, guys. It really did. So for you three and a half million people that voted, thank you for doing that. Yes, um, Catherine, I, I saw after the fact that um, a lot of his um, campaign advisors and consultants were kind of pointing fingers and playing the blame game, although honestly, I, you would kind of say, look, I had a candidate with all these flaws, and we still got 48-plus percent of the vote. Um, you know, Hey, imagine what we could do with a legitimate candidate. Um, but in that runoff period, we talked about it. Herschel Walker held very few events. On the Sunday before Election Day, a week ago, 
Raphael Warnock preached a sermon at Ebenezer Baptist Church, which we'll say he did his day job. And then he held six more events. On that same day, Herschel Walker held one campaign event. Um, it was just like they were running two completely different kinds of campaigns. Raphael Warnock was going into more um, persuadable areas, that big event he had with Dave Matthews in Cobb County, whereas Herschel Walker was doing base events in the Georgia mountains in the final days of the campaign. I mean, could you kind of tell – uh, beyond the early vote that this thing was – the die was being cast? Um, I, I think so. I think, you know, it's it's hard to know what what was going into those decisions, having not been in the room. But uh, it could have been all kinds of things that – made those decisions for them but thankfully they were the right decisions for uh reverend senator dr warnock and uh the wrong decisions for herschel walker so uh praise be yeah um now now, tim um you know when when brian kemp is on the ballot for himself he's fared pretty well when Brian Kemp has stepped into federal politics and picked his choice, backed his choice, or in this case got in kind of late into the runoff and really you know, he started a federal pack and he backed Herschel Walker much more vocally, it has not gone well for him in federal politics. Um, if you were Brian Kemp and his advisors, what would your take be on sticking with governor – or our state politics are looking at federal politics. You get the feeling in that particular race that, and and I think a lot of people thought thought this. They thought, well, you know what, Kemp is just being a good trooper by getting out yeah. and supporting the Republican nominee. His heart is not really in it, and I don't think it really was. And and sometimes. Candidates with the magic have the magic when they're on the ballot themselves. Uh, you, you could make a strong case now. The only reason maybe that Warnock didn't win that thing outright on November the 8th was that Kemp was actually on the ballot uh, pulling the rest of the Republican ticket up with him, including Herschel Walker. That That would do a lot to explain why... Warnock uh, won the runoff by nearly three times as many votes as he did, uh, you know, on on election night. So, so some sometimes you just can't transfer the magic if you're not on the ballot. Donald Trump certainly found that out this year, didn't he? He was he was Mister Magic when he was on the ballot, but. Uh, being on the ballot yourself and then going out and campaigning for other people sometimes is not the same thing. Yes. Now, um, I guess we'll get some vote analysis later, but we do know that there were you know, Kemp Warnock voters, and it looked like most mm-hmm. of those came back out um, and then voted again for Raphael Warnock. The libertarian voters – and I don't know if there's any way to isolate those voters, but other than some deep well, polling that might be conducted post-facto or if the um, exit polls, but where, which way did they break? And then, of course, there's just people not turning out for either side, which looks like Raphael Warnock got back his base. Tim, it sounds like you may have some, in some numbers. Well, well, well. In in the governor's race, for instance, the libertarian candidate for governor got seven tenths of one percent. And in the U.S. Senate race, the Libertarian got 2.1%. That's got to say one thing, that a, a few people decided, heck, I'm going to vote for the Libertarian candidate in this Senate race. And and we're talking probably there about 35,000, 40,000 people that made just that one decision. So, yeah, I, I think it... It, it does make a difference dependent on what the race is. Yeah, what what a shame that they did because that 
made everybody suffer through another election and all the money that got spent. I think that's one thing that people on both yeah, sides but of the, the thing is, is the thing all is, money that the thing is, yeah, but the thing is, those thirty-five or forty thousand people I'm talking about, if they had stayed with the Republicans, Herschel Walker could have actually led yeah. on election night. Oh yeah, well, and I'm I'm assuming that they break a different way because. You know, I, for whatever reason, um, and I'll tell you, the Libertarian Party was very interesting. I noticed that um, Shane Hazel. I was looking back because I had heard that Brian Kemp actually did better than Nathan Deal did running for re-election, which I thought was pretty surprising, but that was actually correct. But the bigger difference, and then Jason Carter ran, I think, a little bit short of Stacey Abrams, twenty fourteen to twenty eighteen, but the numbers were pretty similar. But the big difference was the Libertarian vote just cratered. Uh, in the governor's race, um, mm-hmm. and so that's where some of that um, extra vote for you know Brian Kemp went. Which, of course, you know we know that there was this increased uh, registration of voters over that eight-year period, and seemingly we made no gains in that race. So that's something that I think Democrats are really going to have to look at. Um, there were some positive things though in the metro area. Um, Fayette County looks like it may flip very soon. Um, Spalding County may flip, and then we're making progress in Paulding. We're making progress in Coweta, and one thing the Republicans have to be very concerned about is in Cherokee and Paulding – I'm sorry, Cherokee and um, Forsyth, probably the two biggest Republican counties. Democrats are getting a larger percentage of the vote. Um, Catherine, if, if that um, – Metro Atlanta area continues to just go blue. What does that look like for the Republican Party moving forward? It it does not look good for them, does it? Uh, it's um, it's you know hard work on the on behalf of the Democrats and uh, also a lot of uh, I think it's indicative of it's a reflection on the. Republican Party, both in Georgia and nationally, and uh, I'm I'm happy to see it. Yeah, and Tim, you you mentioned some of the other cities in Georgia. How some of the counties right next door are doing the same thing. Kind of mentioned some of that. Yeah, like Burke County, um, Warnock kept that gap under six points there. Peach County, it was under four and a half points. Now, these are counties that have been, you know, pretty solidly voting Republican. And uh, both of them are not that far from from some of the other cities. But still, you don't seem to have that huge bleed over in those smaller counties, um, even outside of on, on outside of Atlanta. Uh, for instance, you get over to Barra County, 40 miles from Atlanta, and and it's like you're in another state, you know, as far as voting goes. And Burke and Peach have been that way, and they're small counties too, uh, kind of rural counties, the kind of counties that are perfect for Republicans. So they got to be getting concerned if Democrats start playing ball in some of those counties. Uh, we're 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 upwards now to thirty or more counties that the Democrats are winning. Right now in this state. Now that don't sound like a lot, but man, when you throw in all that huge population of the metro counties, well, to be honest, the Republicans cannot afford to lose any ground in rural counties, or, or they're go- they're going to get wiped out at the state level before long. Yeah, we're going to play that, David. We're going to do that, that one point. One point, one point in Fayette County right now. One point. That's, that was the difference. It's just getting closer and closer every cycle. And like, you know, we're, we're Herschel Walker's best county. Glasscock County won at 91-9, but it's one of the smallest 10 counties in Georgia. Um, mm-hmm. Herschel Walker's best county, Clayton, um, 89-11. It's the fifth largest county in Georgia. Uh, I mean, it's just um, – just incredibly bad math. Now, of course, there's a whole lot more counties in the state that are the size of Glasscock, um, but 
you have to add up so many. I mean, some of these counties, their neighborhoods in Gwinnett and Cobb that are <laughs> bigger than the entire county of these places. Um, so it'll be something to see. Well, um, one more thing about Rockville Warnock um, is one of our guests actually called me to get a quote. Well, actually, let's let's switch gears now. And we'll talk about some things on the other side. But we want to welcome into the Kudzu Vine for NBC News, Miss Suzanne Gamboa. Welcome, Miss Gamboa. Oh, hi. How are you doing? Thank you. Yes, thank you for coming on the Kudzu Vine. Well, uh, Miss Gamboa, right off the bat, I mean, I've told your title, but just give us a little bit about your background. And you can, of course, include your current work, but anything that got you there. Oh, wow. I'm a veteran, so I have been working at journalism for more than 30 years. I started with the Associated Press, and my you know full career accumulated to about, I think, about 21 years with AP, but not sequentially. I had a break in there working with a newspaper in Austin, and I worked um, in the district. Uh, I, I was the El Paso correspondent on the border for AP. I worked in the state legislature, the state house covered government. I covered... Um, uh, George W. Bush's uh, first uh, campaign as governor in Texas, um, and I was in uh, Washington D.C. for about 18 years for both for both um, AP and uh, NBC News. Yes, ma'am. So, so Texas is obviously uh, going to be an important thing. I'm not going to ask about it. I don't know if Tim will, maybe Catherine will. We'll see. Um, but I'm going to take you away from there, and I kind of prompted you. I want to ask about, uh, you know, not just Georgia, but places like North Carolina, South Carolina. There's a lot of communities in northwest Georgia where Tim and I live, and, and Rome and Cedartown and, and Dalton and even in Gainesville on the east side of the state. They have increasing Latino populations, but we haven't seen it reflected in the voting totals like we have in places like Arizona and Texas and Florida and in New Mexico, where there's long-established communities. Um, just based on your research of politics and culture, at what point do you think we'll start to see some of these communities have more of an impact at the voting booth? Well, I mean, that's a really good question. First of all, you have to just think about it. Even though you have a presence and you're feeling the presence now of Hispanic Latinos in in those states, it's still a small percentage. I mean, uh, you know, when when you look at populations, we can look at the size of a population, but then you have to look at the the size that is eligible to vote. So this is not only people whether or not they are citizens yet, but also whether they're of age. And Latinos are very young, and I think we we had a, a wave of Latinos who uh, migrated to the country um, in the in the late 90s, early 2000s, I believe. It was about the time for that area of the country. And those people, have, you know, they've had children, and maybe their children have now had children, but they're just, you know, coming of age to, uh, to, where, to where, you know, you would see that kind of growth there in the electorate. So how long it takes is a really good question, because even with the established uh, areas of the country, I mean, there are, the, the, the turnout is still of, of eligible Latinos, people who are eligible to vote. They are citizens that are over the age of 18, or they're 18 and over. And they're still, uh, like, I know nationally about half of the Latinos who are eligible actually um, vote, and so, or, or less than half. And so I'm not sure what the number is in Texas, et cetera, but, you know, you can see that there's still this long way to go uh, in terms of, of turnout, even for established uh, Latino populations. And, you know, I, I remind people that even though the Voting Rights Act gave um, the right to vote to everyone or, or guaranteed the right to vote to everyone or protected the right to vote, uh, Latinos, which were mostly Mexican-Americans at the time and Puerto Ricans um, and smaller numbers of, of, of Cubans, et cetera, really their their protected right to vote came in 75, came 10 years later when the Voting Rights Act was reauthorized. And that's because when it was reauthorized, the um, guarantee was made for people who were considered um, uh, language uh, challenge, you know, having a language issues. And uh, because at that time there were, there were still um, uh, denial of rights to vote uh, for people who um, did not speak, you know, who who were assumed to not speak English, and so 
that that guarantee for the right to vote, that protection didn't come until the 70s. So you really didn't have the sort of mobilization start until about 75. That's when the um, Southwest Voter, Voter, Southwest Voter uh, Institute um, actually in Texas, actually, Willie Velasquez actually started mobilizing in Texas. So I, I think if there's... It just depends on whether the money is put in there. Um, in Georgia, you know, Georgia became so important in the Senate, perhaps Democrats and, and Democrat funders will decide that they have to invest to really uh, turn out uh, vote, uh, Latino voters. And, and that could come, that comes in a lot of different ways, in, um, not just in speaking to voters, but also hiring uh, Latinos or people who are experienced in um, uh, in the culture and know how to turn out Latino voters. That's a long-winded answer. Oh, <laughs> Sorry about that. <laughs> yeah, certainly. No, that was a great answer, very informative. Um, and, and I think uh, we, one of our frequent guests, Chuck Rocha, uh, he, he mentions that as well about people that know how to campaign to the Latino community. I'm sure Republican consultants are trying to foster the same type of thing on that side. Well, let me um, pass it along to Tim and then Catherine, and then if there's something else that I really want to ask, I may jump back in. Uh, Tim? Good evening, Miss Gamboa. Thank you for being with us tonight. Right out of the gate, right out of the gate, i got to ask you, after so many near misses and after so much hope to be dashed on the rocks in past years past cycles is there finally going to be an immigration deal in congress <laughs> you know what i i told um this to another uh radio show year a few years back i built a whole career on the fact that that, that congress could never get it together and um <laughs> you know i it really because that's what i when i was in when i was in washington and um i was I was actually there to cover the congressional delegation for Texas, and I did that, but I also ended up covering a lot of immigration because of my background, et cetera. And it just year after year after year, it just didn't happen. And they came so close so many times. But I think as long as it's a political whipping boy, um, I, you know, I just don't have a whole lot of confidence. There's a part of me that, that uh, believes, um, and, and I want to say this correctly because I, I think, you know, the people that are trying to get immigration reform done have really tried hard, but I wonder sometimes until they elect a Congress that is uh, uh, amenable to it, um, whether that's Democrats in both houses or that's uh, maybe mid, uh, more central uh, Republicans who uh, see like the business side of it, because I know you have a lot of business groups this time around really pushing um, hotels, et cetera, um, farm groups that really uh, want the workers. But until you have that, um, I just, I, I, I'm very skeptical. Uh, you know, my, it, I've never really, I, I've only talked a little bit with people about this, but um, I mentioned it at a, at a, um, a one-day conference at the Georgetown Law School. And it, it, when I said it, I, I, it surprised me. I got instant applause. But um, I, I just feel like until our country starts thinking about immigration as it's not a static issue, that we can go in one and done, that it's an issue that will always be there, that will always shift, that will always be changing. It's, it's just not static, and that's because it's so tied to human behavior and human desire and human need. I was thinking today about how, you know, people from the East Coast went out to California to, for better lives because there was gold out there and they could get off, be, become better economically they could better themselves economically and that's and and we did it in this country and people do it elsewhere if you're desperate and you're uh you know you know you don't have food and you know uh you have years of drought or um even if you're doing well and but you could do better in the u.s it's just human nature and i just sometimes think we as a country are not addressing it that way i mean there are a lot of sure there are a lot of concerns on the border about people slipping through that shouldn't um, I would not want to be the Border Patrol agent that's having to process a bunch of people, and it turns out that's who the, per the person that came and, um, you know, did another 9-11 came through that person, that agent. But somehow mm -hmm. we've got to, you know, learn to, we either, if, by ignoring it doesn't help, you know, using it, I think, mm -hmm. as a, so that, I don't know if we'll ever come to that thinking. I, I, it felt like we were almost mm -hmm. there in the Bush years, and it didn't happen. 
Well, speaking of a different Congress, though, as you have written, in January, you will have a record number in the U.S. Congress. I believe the figure you gave was at least 45, which would be, you know, more than 10%. What legislation will be important to these people? Is it economic um, stuff or... You mean to, to, the, to the legislators that are coming in, to the members of Congress, the, the Hispanic Caucus, certainly our immigration reform is going to be up there because uh, the majority of the, those that are going to be in Congress that are Hispanic are, um, are Democrats. Uh, mm-hmm. In the past, though, Democrat and, and Republican Hispanics would often agree on immigration reform. They often found, had common ground because it was an mm-hmm. issue that affects communities across the, across the aisle. Um, people like Mario Diaz Ballard, et cetera, um, they might take different approaches, but they tended to support have a support for immigration reform. Um, but I think you're going to see a lot in terms of um, economy um, jobs uh, because um, I think that you know the lessons from a couple of elections has been that you know the, these are the things that have always been important to. Um, the Latino community or, or people, Latinos, people in, 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 uh, in, in the country who are Latino or Hispanic. And um, I, I just don't see it varying that much. Sure, there will be issues here and there, like um, the deportation of veterans. Um, most of them are Hispanic, and it's uh, Hispanic members of Congress who tend to be pushing that issue um, to try to change that. Um, I'm trying to think of some other issues that might be more specific, um, you might call it like education uh, certainly is always an issue for everyone. Everyone's interested in that issue, whatever side of the aisle they're on, whether it's, you know, anti-CRT or, you know, uh, more education funding, whatever. Um, but, mm-hmm. you, know, you know, with the Hispanic caucus, you might find, um, you know, interest in um, improving uh, uh, funding for Hispanic serving institutions. Uh, those are Those are colleges where the population of students are are generally 25% of the enrollment or more. So, you know, I think, you know, that what's going to matter just depends on who you're talking to, what part of the country they come from. Uh, In Georgia, I mean, I think you guys could probably talk more about that uh, than I could, but, um, you know, uh, infrastructure certainly will be important. And and I I Mm -hmm. also think climate change, um, you know, whether you call it climate change or environmental justice, uh, Hispanics, Latinos tend to live in uh, a, a coastal areas. There are a lot of a lot of the population mm-hmm. that you would find where c- climate change is is really affecting uh, the population in sort of what some might say a disproportionate way. So um, those could be issues. And certainly, like the Florida delegation, they have to deal with it. And you have many Hispanics in the Florida delegation, and it's important to everyone in Florida, right? If if your coastal uh, communities of Miami is flooding all the time, but um, so that, but you would feel maybe more of the Hispanic pockets on that because so many of them, uh, so many Hispanic me- members of Congress are from that area, right? So, mm-hmm. um, okay, I want to yeah. I want to ask you one more question, then I'm going to throw it over to Catherine, and and I must begin this by admitting, until December the eighth, I did not realize that December the eighth was National Latina Pay Equity Day. Uh, but you've written a lot about it recently. Um, but I but I gotta ask, outside of a set aside day to bring some attention to the issue, is anyone in federal elective office right now doing anything meaningful to address this issue? Um, I think you know that you'll find people who have introduced legislation, but I don't think it's something that. I could say, yeah, they almost moved something through Congress, uh, you know, last year or something like that. It seems to sort of take a, a you know, like especially with, with the pandemic, right, everybody, the, the concentration mm-hmm. was more on getting people back to work as opposed to dealing with uh, gaps in pay. I, I mean, the whole point of having a day, it's really a women's movement sort of thing because it was initially mm-hmm. a, you have a national uh, equal pay day for all women. And because of the drastic gap between um, for for um, for women of color, I guess you want to call them um, not just Hispanics but Asian and Native American women, 
compared to white men, you know, the the gap is at one level for white men and white women, and and then it's even more for more drastic for women of of these other communities. Um, They created these other day, the the Equal Pay Equity Day for uh, Latinas, and for um, the Mm -hmm. other groups also had their days just to bring, try to bring more attention, to bring more pressure to to produce the kind of thing you're asking about, some kind of movement uh, on those issues. yeah, and that gap is really, really large, too, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, and I think a lot of people believe that you might um, see some difference uh, as you see more Latinas. You know, Latinas are, are going to college at higher rates more as you see more of them get into mm-hmm. college education. But even then, so the, the people I talked to, and this was, you know, a quick one-day story, and so I'm, I'm sure there's room for much more uh, analysis, but they said, you know, look, they've, they've done the numbers, they've run the numbers, they've accommodated for differences in education or differences in jobs or whatever, and in the end, there's still this gap that they attribute to both sexism and racism, depending on who they're talking about. So it's mm-hmm. not an easy issue to overcome, because there's a lot of societal issues that go with it. Um, so. Right. Well, uh, we certainly appreciate you being on with us tonight, and I'm going to throw it over to Catherine for some more questions. Catherine? Hey, thank you so much for being with us tonight. Great to have you on the show. Um, I want Tim kind of stole my question, but I'm going to see if we can elaborate (laughs) on it a little bit. Um, For years, I've always um, felt like uh, as – that campaigns and to some extent elected officials, but mostly uh, campaigns have focused on immigration Mm -hmm. as a main issue in trying to lure or attract um, Latino and Hispanic voters. But it always seemed kind of um, one note to me. Um, I mean, if you're in the country and you're voting, um, you probably have a lot of other issues. I mean, immigration, of course, is important. It's important to me as a white woman, too. Um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But there's so many other matters that are have an impact on your life that I, I sometimes wonder if we have missed the mark on not talking more about health care or, like you said earlier, education economics, climate change, I feel like we sort of treat um, Latino and Hispanic voters in this one note, you know, always focusing on immigration. Am I wrong about that? No, I don't think you are, but I also think that that you don't have to, if you feel like you did that um, uh, or there were other people that did it, they don't really have to beat themselves up too much because what we went through in the 90s and the 2000s, the, the migration of, of Latin American migrants to this country was significant. It was a, it was a very large number and, and larger than we'd seen in a long time. And this was not just crossing the border illegally. This was people with asylum. This was people with, um, with uh, green cards, et cetera. It was a, certainly a large migration. And, um, and that was an issue of importance and a lot of our social movement in the country comes from our young people and at that time the young Latino people were either children of migrants they were born in this country um, or children who came with their families and they were of age they were getting into the political movements and and I feel like in my time you know because I you know I'm Mexican-American and and, um, uh, I'm a different generation Uh, I'm older but I feel like when I was in college um, that the 70s movement had happened, the Chicano movement had happened, and it, it was different. The, many of the people I went to school, we were sort of trying to work through the system and sort of, you know, uh, I guess integrate in that way and, and change the things that, that way or, you know, bring about whatever change comes with who we are. And, um, and But these young people, so I, I don't feel like we had as strong of a, of a movement as, uh, or an existing like Latino movement as we had when, um, I don't know if you remember when the Sensenbrenner bill, which I can't remember the number of it, but it was a, it was an immigration bill that was really, really tough. And I think like one of the provisions, like if you were helping migrants, you might get fined or something. It was just really tough. And that's the one that spurred the, the, the big um, turnouts and protests in LA and all around the country and all the big cities. And it took a lot of people by surprise. A lot of people, even in media, 
that that many Latinos had turned out. And, and they weren't all citizens. Some of them were residents or whatever, but a lot of them were too. And I think all of that, you just had this movement and you had these young people that were leading this movement that were so closely um, connected to immigration that it was okay to have immigration as a front and center issue because we had this significant population that was being affected by it. And so much of our economy too um, is affected by it and, and our, um, our, our ability as a country to, um, to just kind of rebirth and regrowth, keep up our growth, our economic growth, right? Because uh, the young people at that time of that and now are these mostly Latino immigrants that have come here and that's what's keeping our country young and growing. And, and, and actually more, there are more Latinos today now are born in the country. It's, that's where our growth, the Latino growth is more from um, uh, native births or, or births, you know, in the country than they are from migration. From other, and it, and it, it wasn't like that for a while. You were seeing more growth from immigration than from uh, births in the country, but that's all changed. So, um, but also, you know, I, we, we talked about this uh, recently in our, in our um, at work because we were trying to discuss like how important immigration, how, where, what place immigration was taking in 22. And, you know, we sort of made this, I sort of made the statement and, and someone I was with said, you know, it's not as, as important as, it has been, and someone kind of didn't like that, you know, and they were saying, how, where are you getting that from? Because all this stuff is happening at the border. And, but a previous, like, uh, it was Latino Decisions at the time, poll had shown that it ranked like number two among Hispanics as an issue, whereas this midterm, it was further down, like six or seven, something like that. So, you know, things change. And so it's, 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 it's okay, like, if the issue of the country is... Um, the Ukraine war and how much we're spending in, to help Ukraine, if that's the number one issue, then it's okay for us to spend time talking about it. You know, we shouldn't pigeonhole Latinos definitely, and we shouldn't say that's all they care about. Um, and and right. I did get frustrated I, no, that I, that's all I, it was, you know. And that's what, that's what I feel like we're, you know, sometimes I feel like that's what we do. But you make a yeah, really no, good and point. I, I think that. I, I think that, that, that I, I do. with military – is also a big issue because I, I believe that there's probably a lot of um, Latino and Hispanic young people who choose the military right. as a way of um, uh, improving their economic circumstances. Or to and follow in the footsteps of their family or to travel. Exactly. Or all the other reasons and, anybody would join the military. Right. So, so that's another issue that seems – I just I, I just worry about it. I, I, no, no, I, I think know. you're I think you're on the right, I don't ca- on the right track over because it. let me just yeah. No, I think you're <laughs> on the right because I even I as a reporter like in in the newsrooms like sometimes it would like be okay you cover immigration that's what you can cover and it was like no you know what I I, I was born in this country my family goes way back we have roots in Texas that you know um, before the border and all that kind of stuff and um, and so you know my. I think my part of my ambition and what I do now and what I've done in my career is the, is to try to quote Latinos who are in different fields so that we show that there are, you know, uh, uh, expertise in all these places, that there are interests in all these places, that, you know, the, the environmentalist or the um, climatologist or that's Latino, you know, because that helps bring that perspective and that, that sort of understanding of, uh, when we're talking about having a diverse nation, that's that's what it is, right? And um, but I, you know, it's it's always a it's always a difficult um, needle to thread, right? Because you want to talk about the stuff that people um, are talking about, but you also do have to know that Latinos are like everyone else, right? Um, I think it was uh, Jason Vialba told me he was talking with another reporter. He's Jason Vialba is the um, the co-founder of the Texas Hispanic policy uh, foundation. And I, he, he used to be, he was a Republican in the state legislature for a while. I think he was the only one in Texas. And then he has moved to be independent. Um, but he told me he was on a panel and, and one of the reporters says, isn't it funny? Wouldn't it be funny if we talked about how the, the white people in Tyler, Texas don't vote the same way as the white people in California? And his point was, like, we don't do this, right? I mean, like, right, this is not the – so we should – but I think I, – I don't, I don't criticize a lot of people because on it because a lot – I mean, I do, but try not to. But so, 
but uh, because um, <laughs> I try not to. Because I, I try we, not we know that feeling. <laughs> right? <laughs> you know what, what people say about Southerners or whatever, but, but because we, we were for so long such a small population. And I, I was, I've been doing a lot of reading about um, Hispanic identity recently, and, and there wasn't even a category for Mexicans or Mexican-American or Hispanic on the census until, like, the 80s, uh, until, like, early 80s, oh like, 70s, goodness, early really? 80s. Yeah, that's recent. Yeah, because the that's first... That's amazing. Yeah, the first real study of um, the population. This is funny, the Mexican-American population, which was how they knew it then, um, was in, like, 1970 census, and it was the long form, and they would ask you, like, what's... Um, uh, what's your descent? Are you Puerto Rican or are you Mexican? Are you Central American or South American? And they got um, the census director, the new census director, who happens to be a Mexican-American, told me this, that they got these funny numbers where all of a sudden they had, like, all these Mexican-Americans in, like, Ohio and, and the Midwest. And, and um, that was because people said, well, yeah, I'm Central America. I'm in the middle of the center of the U.S., so I'm Central oh. American. So, so they had to kind of redo the questions uh, because of that mistake. Or, or I live in the South. I live in Georgia. I'm South American. Yeah. People didn't understand that they were talking about the country South America because it was such a novelty. So um, anyway. That's, that's I, a great I, I story. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, thank you so much. I'm going to pass it back to Tim for, I mean, to David for some final questions. It was great having you on the show. We really appreciate it. It was great talking to you all. It's always nice to talk to people from other parts of the country. Yes. Well, Ms. Gamboa, let's take you back home, and, and let's ask about Texas politically. That was one of the big stories coming out of the 2020 election. Even though Democrats did so much better in you know, big uh, metropolitan areas, and I'm sure Latino voters in Dallas mm-hmm. and Houston, San Antonio followed that pattern, along the border in those areas which are – majority Latino um, mm-hmm. that have been more democratic for years or democratic leaning, they moved as quickly as anywhere to the Republicans. Um, and much was study was done. And since you're in Texas and you cover this for a living, what's your take on this? Well, I think there's still like a lot some analysis to be done on the 2020 elections at the precinct level and et cetera to see where the turnout was, but I think everybody can agree that the Republicans did improve their margins. Um, these aren't necessarily margins that haven't been seen in Texas before, but they've mostly happened at the state uh, office level. So someone like Greg Abbott, you know, could get, uh, even or Rick Perry or George W. could get 30, you know, 5 to 40%, 44% in those areas. And um, uh, I think, like, it, like Greg Abbott, he got somewhere... I'm, I'm thinking about one of the big counties. Like one of the big counties down there is uh, Hidalgo County or uh, Cameron County. So they have like 88 to 90% of their voting population is Latino, Hispanic. So you can kind of look at those big counties, say, in the congressional districts that, that people were um, focused on and see how things went um, because that's where a lot of the population would be and a lot of the voters so in District 34, which is where Maida Flores, who is a congresswoman, and she won through a special election in June, so she was the incumbent for that district, um, and she went up against uh, Vicente Gonzalez, who was from a next-door district but moved into that district after the districts were redrawn and his home was drawn into the new district. So she went up against him, and he's a Democrat, and he got 50 point, about 50.2%. Uh, in the election um, in uh, in Hidalgo County, and while she Mayra had forty six point six percent, and that's a pretty good margin for Republicans in that very heavy district. But but everywhere in that county, uh, every office went, was won by a Democrat, and that happened in twenty twenty. So in twenty twenty, even. Um, in the counties along the border um, that did flip, that like Sapata County that went red, down ballot, everything was still blue. And so the Republicans put in a lot of money, and there was a group called Project Red that 
ran Republicans in every district. And so I still think that there's there's still more to be seen, you know, because people are saying that, oh, Republicans didn't do well. Well, Republicans are going to have to decide, can they invest the amount of money that they invested? Because they could, their, their donors could see the amount that they invested and, and, and think, well, we got one out of three, and that's not a very good yield, and I'm, that, that wasn't a very good yield for my money, so I'm not coming back. Or they could say, hey, look at these margins. We did better. We can, if we keep at it, we can do even better. Um, and, but, you know, the question is, do, will, they, will they look at what's happened down ballot and say, you know what, this is as good as it gets? Because other Republicans at the state level have done this, and we just haven't gotten beyond this percentage. Um, you know, and then you all, I, I, I remind people that for, I would say since about mid-2000, um, at least I've been reporting about the, the tens of thousands of, of young Latinos who turn 18 every year and get added to the pool of the electorate. So since I, I, the first time I reported that was about 2006, 2007, and that was, it was about 50,000 a year. Now it's like a million a year. So you not only have this pool that's growing at this younger level, but every year that pool that's added, they get older. And so that pool that was being added, that 50,000 that were of Latinos that were being added to the electorate in the mid-2000s, they're now in their 30s and 40s. And you and I both know that maybe how we felt when we were young is not how we feel in our middle age because now we own a home and now we have kids and now we have to think about the school board and we have community and we have church and whatever. And um, not that you don't have that when you're young, but, you know, that's, your, that's who you're kind of around or who your friends are or whatever. So I think all of that factors into this, that it's, you know, politically you were talking about doing the right kind of um, outreach um, to Latinos. And I think, you know, one of the – sometimes when I ask people, like, okay, so how are you, what kind of outreach are you doing? How are you reaching Latinos? They say, well, we're doing all these Spanish language ads. Like, you know what, like that leaves out a whole large segment of the Latino voting population that, um, like I live in San Antonio, and the whole city is Hispanic, and they live in different areas. They can be in the very poor area, they can be in the wealthier, they can be in the middle income area, and what, you know, how are you going to reach these better citizens that you want to turn out and you want to vote your way, and they're not concerned about immigration or they're not concerned about um, being able to get, um, oh, I don't know, I'm trying to think of, 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 of Obamacare, maybe because they already have insurance through there. How are you reaching them as a Latino? Because there are some studies that show that when you do these ads in English um, that are tailored to a certain cultural um, touchstone, that you do reach that person. So, you know, that, there's, there's a lot. It's I, I think it's Still to be seen. I think that that definitely Republicans made progress, but and, and you also have to remember that with all these numbers, you're always having this growing pool, and as long as they they turn out, um, you have these raw numbers that keep going up, right? So you're adding more Republicans probably because from this, you can't add a million people and not have any new Republicans, Hispanics, right? I mean, so you, some of them are going to vote Republican, and some of them won't vote Democrat, and I think it's um. Uh, Eduardo Gadava, who's a, a, a Republican uh, author, uh, a political uh, writer, he um, said the margins, you know, we'll, we'll continue to see, uh, you know, this Hispanic growth, et cetera, but the margins are going to probably get thinner and thinner, which is kind of what's happening, I think. So that's my take. Yeah. <laughs> oh, and, and you have a wealth of background to have this take. Well, um, Ms. Gamboa, we thank you so much for coming on the show. The one final question we let all our guests leave our, our listeners with is if people have heard you and they want to read more about you or listen or see, because we know NBC News has all modes of um, getting the word out, anywhere our yeah. listeners could um, gain your insight, just feel free to share it with us. Sure. I'm on – and you know, obviously, I, I'm text mostly, so – my work is on NBCLatino.com. That's the easiest way to find it, NBCLatino.com. And, uh, you know, my, my hits on TV and radio are infrequent, so when you invite me back, they can listen to cuts. <laughs> yes. Well, that, that sounds great <laughs> because we know that, uh, that a group that is uh, at least 13% of the American population and growing, we have to continue to talk and engage and learn about yeah. um, 
these important citizens. So we can't wait to have you back sometime in the future. 62 million people. It's hard to ignore. Absolutely. Yes, ma'am. <laughs> Thank, Thank you. Thank so much for coming back. on the show Thank you. Thank you. Yes. For Thank you so me. much. I really enjoyed this. Take care. Thank Bye-bye. you, ma'am. Yes. That was Suzanne Gamboa, NBC News, NBC Latino. Um, just so much great information tonight um, about the Latino community and, and what have you. So we're going to have to have her back on again because there's so many things we didn't talk about and, and more issues that will come up. Well, uh, we've got a few minutes, not many, so we're, we're just going to scratch the surface on this next, next topic. Raphael Warnock gains a 51-seat majority for the Democrats, and then we find out late in the week that the Democrats, including Angus King and Bernie Sanders, could be back to 50, but maybe 51, depending on how Arizona Senator Kirsten Sinema continues to align. Uh, Catherine, uh, you heard the news. What were your thoughts on Kirsten Cinema becoming an independent? Not surprising and certainly indicative of her need to be in the spotlight. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, t- Tim, same question. Uh, your thoughts when you heard of that? Um, I won't say swing well, really I, that, I, that political move. Yeah, I think it's a very calculated political move. Uh, possibly, in her mind, the only move that she has. Uh, if she remains uh, Democratic, polls show that she's going to lose in the Democratic primary in Arizona in 2024 by... <laughs> you know, more than 55 points if uh, Representative Gallego runs, and uh, and apparently he is going to run. So uh, I think she's going to take her chances in uh, what could possibly be a three-way race. I don't know, David. Maybe she's thinking that uh, what will happen with her it would be the same thing that maybe happened in places like Alaska where Democrats rallied around the independent to defeat the Republican. On the other hand, this could really blow up in our faces, uh, and somebody like Carrie Lake could become the next U.S. senator from Arizona in a in a three-way race, God help us all. So uh, as far as her voting, though, I mean, she votes for Biden 93% of the time. For those of you that are scratching your heads about that, well, that's more, for instance, than Senator Tester does. The difference is she opposes some of the major stuff, like, like on the filibuster vote. Y'all saw the the uh, film where she did the pronounced thumbs down and then what almost looked like a curtsy before she left uh, the floor, and she's voted against the president some on some tax issues and stuff like that. But on other things, if what she's saying is true, she'll vote about the same way that she has. So I don't think it'll change the balance of power much at all on the Senate floor. Yes. It's such an unusual move. I mean, not – from her personality because she seems to really uh, love attention. Um, mm. Having that met the person, she just seems to love attention, everything we see. But if you look at the state of Arizona, you know, sometimes the, the sometimes really I do believe people change or politics shifts and they stay the same and they decide to become independent switch parties. What have you? Sometimes it's a politically calculated move. As far as my state's going to be in the other party soon, well, that looks like Arizona. Arizona looks like it is following more of a California, Colorado path than it is even a Georgia or Virginia path uh, moving to the Democratic Party. And so um, it, it won't be one cycle, but it looks like it's moving that way. So. If your people are going that way, why not follow them, especially if you had been a member of the Green Party, had been a person who 2006 criticized Joe Lieberman 
for coming becoming an independent. I mean, this is somebody that's spoken out against what she's doing right now. What's changed? Explain to us what's changed. Her little video that I, I watched it. It was two minutes long, and it was really nothing. I mean, there are people who are very independent minded, but doesn't seem to be like she is. Um, and so I'm very vexed by this, and I'm sure in coming weeks we're going to learn more and we can describe more about it. Um, we are planning for our listeners, kind of planning ahead. Um, we are planning on having a show before the end of the year, but it may not be on a Sunday night, we're thinking, and we're trying to line up just the, the best guests we can possibly have. Whomever we line up, they're going to be the best guests we could possibly have. But went ahead and I've already got the first show of the new year set, uh, Jules Solari, a political consultant out of Florida, is going to join us um, right off the bat because if there's one thing y'all know I like to talk about, it is trying to figure out the riddle that is Florida politics. So <laughs> I want to start out 2023 right out of the gate solving that puzzle. Um, so we're looking forward to that. But just look in the feed, and before now and then, we're going to have an outstanding show for you. But until then, then because of Yvonne, good night, night y'all. Good night, everybody. We are the heirs of that first revolution. Will a strong and united America still be a force for freedom and prosperity around the world? America has.